right, we're going to jump in. We're in Matthew 12. If you are new here, we have been going through Matthew for a very long time. Matthew wrote his book quicker than we've been going through it, and it is, uh, we're only halfway through it as we go along, but we're in Matthew 12, and what happened in the previous verses is, and by the way, if you don't know who Matthew is, Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. He hung out with Jesus, and then he went, and he later wrote down the account of, here's what happened in Jesus' life. And so there's four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have a similar story. Some of them are a little bit different. And then John has totally different perspective. And they all were people who either hung out with Jesus or they were writing the accounts for people who hung out with Jesus. And so we're getting the life and story of Jesus, things that he said and did, and, and eventually we'll get to his death and his resurrection. But tonight, we're in Matthew 12, and we stopped kind of abruptly in a passage last week because I knew that the passages that were coming were going to be really heavy and they're going to need their own night. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight is uh, Matthew 12, starting at verse 30. What happens is Jesus is um, confronted by some of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and he's doing these miracles and he's making these claims that he is the Messiah. And then the Pharisees go, okay, we see that you're doing miracles, that you have this supernatural ability, and yet we think that you are doing them by the power of Satan. And so then Jesus starts going in and he goes on them pretty hard. Here's what he says in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So like all the things that that we were just talking about, Jesus says, I'm one of those things that you're either going to love me or you're going to hate me. I don't really leave an option where you kind of like me or on certain days I'm fun. No, 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 no. You either will, if you understand who I am, you're either going to love me or you're going to hate me. You're going to love me because you believe the things that I say are true, the claims that I've made, that I am God incarnate, that I am the one that can save you, that I'm the only way to heaven and that we can have a relationship. And so if you believe that, you love me. But if you think that I'm a liar or I'm a crazy person, you should hate me. And if you think about this, we should either love or hate him because if he is not who he claims to be, then this means that he is like the ultimate liar and deceiver, that he has deceived billions of people into following him and many people following him into their very death. We see division amongst nations. We see it in our own families. We lose relationships because Jesus is divisive. And so if he wasn't really that person, we should hate him for being so divisive. In fact, Paul says the very same thing. He says, you know, if Jesus has not raised, then we should be pitied because we are wasting our lives. We should be out there enjoying. He says we should uh, eat and drink and be merry. We should go out there and we should be having a blast because tomorrow we're going to die and it's all over. And so if Jesus doesn't, isn't who he says he is and didn't really raise from the dead, then we should hate this guy. And that's what he actually says. He says, you're going to either love me or you're going to hate me. Continues on, 31. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Now, this is really good news, because if Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God incarnate, and that he has the ability to forgive people of their sins, he says that there is not one thing that you can do that he will not forgive. Literally anything that you can think of, any of the worst atrocities that have ever happened, he says, I can forgive those. Which is, for some people, really good news because you go, wow, I've, I've screwed up. I've messed up in my life. I've made some huge mistakes before. And to think that the God of the universe is willing to forgive me, that, that's incredible. But some of us find this really insulting. Uh, I've referred to this book before, but C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce, and I keep encouraging you guys to read these things because I think they illustrate some theological points. Now, I don't believe that they're not from the Bible, and this is not how it is, but he's illustrating a deeper principle of how humanity is. And so what he does in this book is 
He has this imaginary bus that goes from hell and it goes up into heaven and it gives people the opportunity to choose to go into heaven who were condemned to hell. And each person who goes into heaven says, I don't want to be here. This place is horrible because the people who are inside here are the worst. There are murderers in there. There are liars. There are cheaters. I wouldn't want to be in a place in which all these folks exist. In fact, um, I wouldn't want to worship a God that would forgive these people. No way, I can't forgive the wrongdoings, and so God shouldn't either. And so they are insulted by the people that are allowed into heaven because Jesus says everything can be forgiven. And if you think of yourself as a pretty good person and you think of those other people who are horrible people, it's insulting to think that God can forgive those people and they can have the same life and the same reward, eternal life and reward that you and I will have. Then the next verse, and this is where it kind of goes off the rails a little bit here, and this is really what we're gonna be focusing on tonight. It is the verse that is referred to as the unforgivable sin. And I've had so many people over the years come to me and go, hey, um, I think I may have committed the unforgivable sin, or what is it? Because I wanna make sure I avoid that, because you know I don't wanna mess up. And, and people have conceptions, and they've made up stories about what they believe the unforgivable or unpardonable sin is. And right here, Jesus is going to tell us. So here's what he says. He says, but blasphemy against, so he's, so he's already said everything can be forgiven, but then he kind of turns around and he says, but blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And so here Jesus gives us kind of like, it's almost contradicting himself, but he's not, and we'll explain that. On one hand, he says everything can be forgiven, but then he turns around and he says, well, not everything. And an easy way to understand this is he's saying everything external can be forgiven. All of our actions and all of our wrong thoughts can be forgiven, but there is some, something deep, something spiritual that can't be forgiven. But before we get that, and I know everybody's like, ooh, tell me what it is. You know, like, let's hear it. Tell me what it is. I think I know what it is. Tell me what it is. And I'm not going to give you just this like, okay, don't do this, and then you're cool. Because there are, there's so much more to learn here than just what the unforgivable sin is. And so let's look at a couple things. One, the big picture of this passage is that God is enormously willing to forgive, and yet people can put themselves beyond God's ability or power to forgive. Okay, let me say that again, because yours is like the big point for tonight, all right? So let me say it again. God is enormously willing to forgive, and yet people can put themselves beyond God's ability or power to forgive. Okay, so there's two parts to this. The first part is that Jesus, or God, is willing to forgive. In fact, he's, he's enormously willing to forgive. He says here, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Now, we don't really understand this terminology, Son of Man, what exactly does that mean? But the people who are listening to it realize that this is a term of royalty, that he is applying to himself, that he is the king. And not just any king, but he is the king and lord over all. And so ancient kings, they were pretty interesting because... um, you could not treat them poorly or else you would die, literally. So if you look back in the Old Testament, we get a glimpse of what kings acted like. In the book of Esther uh, specifically, we see that um, Esther was afraid of going and talking to her husband because she could be put to death. Nehemiah, the same thing. He was afraid to go in and speak to the king, even though um, he was one of the, the king's most trusted men. He was afraid to go in there and look sad because if you were sad around the king, he could put you to death. If you go in and you approach the king without first being called, you're, you're going to be put to death. I mean, if you went in there and you make eye contact and he felt uncomfortable with that, over. 
The ancient kings were ruthless. They demanded the utmost respect. And yet Jesus comes along and he says, I am a king, but I'm different than the rest of the kings because I am so secure in who I am. And I am such a servant that you can say anything you want against me. You can spit on me. You can cuss on me. In fact, you can murder me. What did Jesus do as he's on the cross and people are literally killing him? He says, Father, forgive them. He says, I'm not like those kinds of kings. I'm not the king that you're used to. You can do and say anything that you want, and yet I will forgive you. Now, this is so against the way that we live our lives, right? Whenever someone does something against us, whether we feel disrespected or they say something negative, we puff up and we go, oh, you don't know me. You don't know me, fool. Like, you don't know where I come from. You don't know what I'm about. Every world star hip hop fight has that line in it. You don't know me, bro. You don't know where I'm from. You don't know what I do. You know, and it's like, it's just this puffing up like, you can't tell me. And yet Jesus goes, you know what? Um, even though I am the one in all of human history that has the right to say those things, I don't. I, in fact, do the very opposite. As you are killing me, I say, forgive them. He's a very different kind of king. And yet, um, Jesus says here, oh, and by the way, we talked about this, I think I mentioned it two weeks ago, as a side note, and this isn't really uh, the main point of what he's doing here, but this gives us a great example of who we should be in our culture, is we live in a culture that is offended by everything, right? I love the, one of my favorite memes was, good morning, America, what are we offended by today? And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly us, right? Like, we are offended all the time. I was listening to the radio this last week, and there was a popular speaker who was going to a college campus, and this guy, like, I mean, he's pretty mainstream. Like, he doesn't say anything too outrageous, just kind of down the line. He's a conservative dude, and uh, they had to hire $600,000 worth of police security for his talk, and they offered counseling because he was on campus, and I went, oh my gosh, we, the little snowflakes are melting. You know, it's just, and we are constantly offended, always offended. And yet Jesus comes along and he goes, you know, as Christians, our job is to have a, and Doyle used this terminology, heart like a dove and skin like a rhino, in which we continue to compassionately care and sacrificially give of ourselves to people, keeping our heart tender. And yet, as they shoot arrows at us, we have thick skin and we go, it's okay, I can take it. I don't need to defend myself. Jesus didn't need to defend himself. Why would I need to defend myself? Jesus has this infinite willingness um, to forgive. Anything and everything can be forgiven. And yet here's the weird part, and this may shock some of you guys, is Jesus does not have, or God does not have the ability to forgive everything. Now you're automatically kind of like you little miniature theologians are going, wait a minute, I remember in Sunday school that they said God can do anything and you're telling me that there is something that God cannot do. And I would say, you are 100% correct. There are lots of things that God cannot do. There are lots of things God can't do. Because of who God is and his character, he cannot do a laundry list of things. One example would be God can't lie. God can't cheat. God can't break a promise. All of these things would go against who God is, his character. And so he, by his very nature, cannot do any of these things. And so as we look at who God is and we look at his character traits and we look at, um, we look at these different aspects of him, we realize that there are different characteristics that are in tension within God. On one hand, he is incredibly loving. In fact, he is all loving. And then on the other hand, he is perfectly just. 
And so here's the tension. Here's the two characteristics of Jesus that are in tension right now because he wants to be perfectly loving. And this is his willingness to forgive any and every sin that has ever been done. Is he wants to. He is willing to. I want to forgive everything. I want to be in relationship with you and I don't want to let anything stand in between you and I. I'm willing to, I'm willing to let any deed, any bad deed go uh, unpunished. And yet, on the other hand, he is perfectly just. It means that within him is this character trait of justice, and there is no way that he can look the other way when there has been wrongdoings. When we think about justice in the world, all of us intuitively have what's called the moral law. All of us know that there are certain things in the world that are good and certain things that are evil, and no one has to teach you. It's intuitive. The Bible says that it was written on our hearts, and so as we think about, for example, this is probably the most clear example, is um, when we have children, is it better for us to love and care for them, or should we torture them for fun? And all of us immediately know what the correct answer is. No, no, no. The most loving thing to do is to care for them. And the evil thing to do is to torture them for fun. Who told you that? What class did you take that told you that's what the right answer was? None. Because it's intuitive to us. There is something about the fabric of our universe in which there is a moral law embedded in it. It permeates all cultures, all time, all history. Every single human culture, although they may wrestle with some of the nuances of what is good and what is evil, everybody understands that there is such thing as good and evil, and they have a primary, primarily uh, the same understanding of what those things are. And that all comes from being made in God's image. The scripture says that we are image bearers, that we are like him, and from his character flows this moral law, and so we have this moral law intuitive to us. We have it within us. Now, part of the moral law is his justice, that he cannot just wink at wrongdoings, he cannot just turn his back, that he has to convict and bring justice to things that are evil or wrong in the world, including in all of our lives. And so I think the easiest way to illustrate this would be, imagine that um, you are walking down the street and a, a, a bunch of guys come and they just start beating you up. You are attacked and you are, beatily, you are beaten uh, brutally. And you're just laying on the ground and you're like, oh, and you're bleeding and you're black and you're blue. And all of a sudden the cops roll up and the cops roll up and they catch these guys. And your response is because you want to be forgiving. You go, you know what? Just let them go. Just let them go. It's okay. Just let them go. The cop would probably say, you know, that's really nice of you. I I think that's great that you have that forgiveness in your heart. And I think that's a healthy thing. That's a positive thing is we are supposed to forgive. But yet there's a bigger principle at hand is there is this thing called justice and it is intuitive and we know it, it's the fabric of our universe and so we cannot let this wrongdoing uh, go unpunished. And so even if you said, I'm willing to forgive them, they would say, great, but we're still taking them in and we're going to arrest them. Why? Because justice must be served. And so this is who God is, is God says, I'm willing to forgive any and everything and however, at the same time, I have to serve justice because if I don't, I wouldn't be morally perfect anymore. And so this is what happens with us when we, uh, when we reject God. Is most people that I encounter and I talk to them about faith, they reject God because they either believe that they don't need forgiveness or, uh, or that forgiveness is somehow easy and God just hands it out like, like candy on Halloween. 
So let me explain this, is they either believe that they don't need forgiveness because um, they don't believe in God or because God understands them or because them and God have this deal in which we're cool, you do you, I'm gonna do me, we'll see each other in eternity. That was a rhyme, I didn't even mean to, you're welcome. Um, Or they believe that somehow God's forgiveness is easy, that he just freely wants to give forgiveness to everybody. But that's just not true. We already saw that he has to have justice. He can't just turn his back. He can't just say, all right, everybody, Ellie, Ellie, Oxen, for your good, let's go. No, there is justice within him and it has to be served. And so when we say things like, you know, um, I'm not perfect, but God gets it. I'm a pretty good person. I do more good than I do bad. And so God will be okay with it. We don't realize who God is and that the forgiveness that he offers to us is not something that is easy for him. It is something that takes an incredible amount of effort because he has this justice within him and it has to be rectified. I think it's because most people just don't realize that um, who God is. They don't understand um, the, the consequences of sin, the incredible difficulty of forgiveness and the extremes that God will go to in order to offer us a way to be forgiven. He would go to the extremes of sending his own son to the cross so that we could be reconciled to him. See, the, the, at the end of the day, what happens is either you and I pay for our wrongdoings and justice is served where God pours his wrath out on us, or we accept the free gift of the wrath has been poured out on Jesus and he will trade our place. But somebody's gonna have to pay for the wrongdoings of the world, the wrongdoings of your life and my life. Wrath and justice has to be served, and so who's going to take it? Is it going to be you or are you gonna, offer, or are you gonna take the gift that is offered to you where Jesus says, I'll take it instead? And so Jesus is infinitely willing to forgive and yet at the same time cannot within his power just turn and forgive everybody just as we serve. So the unpardonable sin, let's get to it. What is this unpardonable sin that Jesus is referring to? And one of the most popular answers that I've heard is people think for some reason, and I'm curious as the history of where this came from, is that suicide is this unpardonable sin. That if you commit suicide, that is like a direct ticket to hell. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter if you follow God. Is if you kill yourself, you go to hell instantaneously. In fact, um, I remember hearing a story about a widow and uh, her husband, and I don't know the circumstances of what happened, but committed suicide. And she didn't want to have a funeral. And she was a believer and he was a believer and they were faithful in the church and I don't know what went wrong. I don't know if it was some kind of mental illness. I don't know the details, but she said, I don't want to have a funeral because we can't celebrate anything. She's devastated, not just at the loss of her husband because she believed that her husband now is going to be condemned to hell because he committed suicide. And see, here's the problem with this is that is the anti-gospel. That is exactly what the gospel says is not true. See, here's the question. What did you do in order to save yourself? Nothing. In fact, you have to admit there is nothing that I can do to save myself. That's the whole grace thing. That's what salvation is about is I can do nothing to save myself. I need you to save me, Jesus. And so the, the counter question is, well, then how can you do something in order to lose it if you, need, if you never did anything in order to gain it? How are you able to do something so bad that you can lose it, but you can't do something so good that you can gain it? See, this is back to old school religion. This is what all other religions in the world are based on, is if you do enough good things, and if you do enough uh, to, to please God, then he's going to forgive you. But if you do something really bad that makes him angry, you're toast. And when you kill yourself, that's like the worst thing that you could do, and so you're toast, and that's not the gospel. The gospel is you can do nothing good or bad to deserve this. 
And so just because your last action on earth is sin, that's gonna condemn you to hell? Think about this, and maybe this puts it in perspective, is guys, let's imagine that we drove out of here tonight and we go down and we're hanging out, we're gonna go have some dinner and whatever. And as we're driving, and this is hypothetical, this would never happen to any of these guys in here, but we're driving and we go, whoa, that girl is extremely good looking, right? And so we are going, wow, she is, hey, love you guys. Uh, She is extremely good looking and I am pretty fascinated with her. In fact, I may have conjured up some images in my mind that would be inappropriate to put on the screen. And so I'm driving and then all of a sudden, because I'm distracted and I'm lusting after this girl, I run into a car and I die. Would I be sent to hell? No, why? 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 My last action was lusting after another woman. Why? I mean, that's sin. And my last action on earth is sin, just like suicide would be. But I'm not going to be condemned to hell. Why? Because the whole point of being saved by God's grace is there's nothing that I can do to lose it or to gain it. It's simply a free gift in which I have to accept. Okay, so now that we got that out of the way, let's see what Jesus really is talking about here. The unforgivable sin that Jesus is talking about is a rejection of God's forgiveness. That we will tell God, you know what? When the Holy Spirit comes in us, and and by the way, if you're not a church person, you're like, oh, what's this mystical Holy Spirit, things like this. Here's what it looks like, is you understand that you have done something wrong. It could be in a moment, it could be a lifestyle, it could be reflecting on your life, and you feel what's called conviction. And you feel like, oh my gosh, I feel this weight on me that I'm not who I should be. I've screwed up. I have all these regrets. I have all these mistakes. And you feel like, oh my gosh, I need to do something about this. That's what we would call the Holy Spirit coming into your life and convicting you of your wrongdoings. And how we respond to that is really what, where the unforgivable sin comes in, is if we go, you know what, God, um, I understand that I've messed up, but I'm going to go and I'm going to earn your forgiveness. I don't need your help. I've got this. I'm good enough. I'm strong enough. I'm going to go and I'm going to figure this out. And we reject him, or we just say, you know what, I don't even care. I'm going to continue to live this life. I don't care what God wants. I'm autonomous. I'm going to be who I want to be. I'm the ruler of my own destiny. Forget you, God. Now, you may not, we may not verbalize that, although some people do. We still do in our actions. We go out and we go, okay, God, I don't need you. I've got this covered. And so as God tries to convict us of sin and he says, you know, um, you have done wrong and you realize that what you need to do is you need to come and you need to ask for forgiveness from me. You need to come and you need to repent. And we hate this word repentance, but it really just means I am convicted of my sin. I know I have screwed up. I need forgiveness and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna live differently because of it. And so God brings this conviction of sin and then he calls us into a relationship. He says, come and I want you to be reconciled with me. And some of us, we just keep him at arm distance and we go, no, no, I'm good enough or I don't need you. I've got this figured out. And this arm's distance right here where we keep God right here, this is what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is us saying, I don't need your forgiveness. I'm fine without you. I don't want you in my life. See, he says, everything can be and will be forgiven if you ask for it. But if you refuse to ask for it, you refuse to be forgiven of your sins, then everything that you have done, you will be accountable for. Nothing will be forgiven. If you ask for it, everything's forgiven. If you don't, nothing is forgiven. See, Jesus right here, he's he's giving us a warning that there is some point in your life in which you will tell God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I can do this on my own. I want to be my own God. I want to be in charge. And at some point, and I don't know when this point is, and I think it's different for everybody, but at some point God goes, 
okay, okay. You have told me no so many times, and I believe you. You have wanted me to get out of your hair. You have wanted me to stop convicting you, stop making you feel bad about your lifestyle. And so I am going to allow you to have that. And so God gives us over to our sin. It is the point of no return. It is the unforgivable sin. We have rejected him so many times and I don't know how many times it is. I don't know when that is, but we have rejected him so many times. He says, all right, go ahead then. You can have what you have always wanted. And he says, and I can't forgive anything that you've done now because you won't accept my offer. In Revelation 3.20, it says this. It says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And so here's the illustration that Jesus is trying to give us here. He's saying, imagine that you're at home and you're hanging out and you're watching TV and you're having a nice meal and you hear someone knocking at the door. You know what every single person does when they hear someone knocking? They immediately go and check who it is. And if they like them, they open up the door, right? Because here's the truth. No one's gonna stand there for the rest of the night and go, I think they're gonna open soon. I think if I just keep knocking, they're gonna, oh, they're, they're, I think they're just, they're just testing me. We're gonna see how much, yeah, I'm gonna wait them out. We're gonna make this happen. No, right? Someone knocks on the door and we are so impatient. I give them like all of three seconds, like one, two, three, oh, man, you're not home, all right, well, see you, <laughs> I gotta go, right? And that's the, that is the illustration that Jesus is going. He's saying, you know, the Holy Spirit will knock on the door of your heart. And he will continue to knock and say, hey, I want to come in. Hey, I want to be reconciled with you. Hey, I want to forgive you of those sins. Hey, I keep trying to point out like your mistakes and all this stuff and, because I want to forgive you of those things. I keep bringing this conviction in your life and yet you continue to keep that door shut. And eventually I'm just going to stop knocking. And when God stops knocking, it's going to be the most startling thing in the world, not because you will feel it, because you will feel nothing. When God has finally given you over into your own sin and your rejection of him, you will be numb. You won't care anymore. You won't care about God. You won't care about Jesus. You won't care about sin. You, won't, you, you will just be living for yourself and you won't even think about it. The most dangerous thing about God giving us over to our sin is that we never think about it anymore. We just live the rest of our life in total rebellion and we don't care. C.S. Lewis has this quote, he says this, and it's one of his most famous quotes. He says, there are two, only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. See, C.S. Lewis points out this misconception that many of us have about hell and about um, being uh, separated from God is that somehow it's God's fault that we are separated from him. And he points out, no, 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 he's been knocking. Everyone has been given an opportunity. He has come and he has said, I want to be reconciled to you. Let's be in a relationship. And it's only those who open the door and said, yes, who embrace him and say, please come in. I need your forgiveness. I, I need to be reconciled with you. It's only those who say, no, 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 the door's closed and I'm not interested in you coming in. And that's what hell is, by the way. People ask, what is hell like? And the Bible gives all this crazy imagery and what exactly it's like. But here's really fundamentally what hell is, is hell is a total separation from God. It is getting exactly what you want. Hell is saying, so what sends people to hell is not all the bad things that they do. Remember, it's not about good or bad things. It's not about, we haven't done good enough to get into heaven. We can't do bad enough to get into hell. It's all about an acceptance or rejection of Jesus. 
And so hell is just you getting exactly what you want, which is no God in your life. It's an eternity of continuing to be eaten away at the very things that are eating you away today. You will become for eternity what you are becoming in this life. The more you rebel against God, the further you get away from him, the less you become human, and uh, an eternal separation is just you going into eternity without him. That's what hell is. We think of these crazy burning and fire and all this kind of stuff, and, and the good news is I think that that is just imagery, that that is just the Bible trying to give us some kind of imagery that makes sense to us, but the bad news is it's far worse than that. Is hell and this burning, and that's, that is actually not as graphic as having an eternal separation from God. And we feel bad, and yet it is the thing that all of us have chosen. And so here's what um, Jesus says. He says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And then here's the part I want to highlight. Either in this age or in the age to come. He says two things here. He talks about the acceptance of the Holy Spirit into our life and of God's forgiveness and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And he says, one day you in this age to come are going to be standing at, in judgment day. And it is you alone standing in front of God and he is going to say, why should I allow you into this perfect place that I call heaven? What, have you, what, what makes you worthy of entering into this perfection? And we'll go, okay, well, God, um, I... I served on the holidays at, uh, at a homeless shelter. I was super nice to my neighbors and like we got along really well and I didn't fight too much with them. And you know what God's gonna say in that moment? Those are filthy rags. I don't care about those things. Because that's what the Bible says. It says that our best deeds are filthy rags to him. We're talking about a holy, perfect God and we're going, I served in a homeless kitchen. He's going, are you kidding me? You think that's what's gonna get you in here? No. You have been deceived, my friend. But here's the image that Jesus wants us to see. He says, you know, you can either stand there alone and go, God, I served at a, a soup kitchen. Or you can have Jesus standing right beside you and he says, uh, he's with me. He's with me. Now, it's not about what he's done, it's about what I've done. I have paid for him to get in here. I have paid the ransom. I have paid his debt. And so it doesn't matter the good things or the bad things he's done because it's about what I've done and I apply it on behalf of, I wanna give him what I deserve, which is entrance. Come on in. And see, that's what Jesus is trying to say. He's saying there's an age to come in which you will be judged based on how you responded to me. Will I stand there next to you on your side or will you be there by yourself? But then right before this, he says something else. He says, in the age to come, but he also says in this age as well. He says, not only does this acceptance of Christ in our life um, apply to and, and affect what happens in the age to come, but it happens right here too. The benefits are not just some pie in the sky, you know, it's a, it's a way out of hell kind of ticket. No, no, no. He says that the benefits apply to here and now, that when we've accepted the work of the Holy Spirit and it's convicted us and we've repented and then we've accepted God into our lives, he begins to work immediately, that we see his transformation happening not only in our own character, but it, he, starts to, um, he starts to affect our lives in a pretty profound way. And so for me, when I think about how God has worked in my life, my story can be traced back for generations. I think about my grandma, and if you've ever heard me talk about this, is she was, uh, her and her husband, they were outlaws. They would uh, sell alcohol when it was illegal. Oh, it's crazy. And she has this miraculous experience in which she's dying, and she accepts God. God, uh, she accepts Jesus into her life at this like random, crazy, in the like forest kind of revival thing. 
and instantly she's healed. And she's healed, and then the next day, my great-grandfather wants to walk out because he doesn't want to be married to some Jesus freak, and so he's walking out, and God paralyzes him on the ground until he finally submits. Crazy stuff, right? This is insane. It's just weird stuff, right? And so then, fast forward, then they become pastors, and they went from, there's even articles, the meanest man in town becomes a Jesus follower. Crazy stuff is happening. He had gun bullets in his body till the day he died because he was a gunslinger. It's just crazy, right? And then you fast forward, then my grandpa, as a little kid, he's a little kid at this time, um, he becomes a Christian, then he becomes a pastor, they're pastors, then the next generation, my dad, they become pastors, and all of my aunts uncles, everybody's pastors. I'm a pastor. I'm pretty sure Ezra's a pastor. I don't know. You know, like it's crazy, right? It's crazy. And why did this happen? Why did this happen? Because we're smart, because we're good enough, because no, we are the opposite of all of those things. The only reason it happened is because my great grandmother felt this conviction that she needed to come to Jesus. And then that my great-grandpa experienced it. And it has changed an entire, not just family, but think about we wouldn't be sitting in this room. Not because I'm so cool or whatever, because God decided to work in this little old lady. And then for generations, now we have all of these pastors. And then here we are today. Crazy, right? And this is how God's Holy Spirit works within our lives. He's, yes, we can be afraid of hell and we can be afraid of hell. And we should be. We should be God-fearing people. But... The opposite is also true. It's crazy things happen when we decide to submit. And so let me, uh, let me end with this. If some of people walk out of here, and I want to end real practical with a couple questions I know are going to come up, is some people walk out, and if you're like me, you're kind of a nervous Christian, um, in which I go, I'm not very good at this, right? I am not good at this at all. Most days I go, Cody, what are you, what is that? What are you doing? Who gives you a microphone? They're idiots, you know? Like, why would anyone do that? And one of the questions is, well, what if that's me, right? Like, have I committed this unforgivable sin? And if that is something in which you worry about, here's the great news. If you worry about it, you haven't done it. Because the result of committing this unforgivable sin is you're numb to spiritual things. You don't care anymore. You don't care about God. You don't care about Jesus. You're going to live your life. You're not even going to think about it. And so the very fact that you are worried about it proves that you haven't done it. The other thing is, what about Christians? Can we, can we reject the Holy Spirit? And, um, and, and can we commit this unforgivable sin? If you have accepted Christ's forgiveness and you have submitted your life to him, there, there's nothing that is going to take you away from him. And so when you lay in bed tonight and if you're a worrier like me and you go, oh, have I messed up? Don't worry. God's got you. He loves you. All he asks is simply this. Will you respond when I call? And if you say yes, you're good. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for, um, for the scripture. Thank you so much for uh, how practical and yet incredibly challenging it is. As I think about some of these weighty topics and stuff that I feel very unqualified to even tackle, um, I pray that you are still in the midst of it and that whatever we need to hear from your word that it would bypass any of my, um, my failings and my, my screw-ups and that you would be able to communicate directly to us. And if there are people in this room who have felt this call, who feel like, man, I think God's been trying to get a hold of me and he's been convicting me and oh, I know exactly what that guy's talking about, that tonight would be the night that they finally just say, you know what, God, it's yours. I don't wanna fight I need your forgiveness. I, don't, I know that you're knocking at the door and I just, want to, I just want to let you in. 
And so, Lord God, I pray right now that if there's anyone who feels that, that they would just say, I submit to you, Lord God. I submit to you. And so, Jesus, we thank you for how good you are to us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your guiding presence in our life. In your name we pray. Amen.